morning, Honolulu, and welcome to Behind the Lights with me, Stab. And me, Jono. As always, we pay respect to the traditional custodians of the land where you're coming from, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Well, Jono, as always, another busy sporting week and weekend, and we'll start with football. Uh, World Cup qualifiers, and unfortunately, our neighbours, New Zealand, couldn't quite get it done against Costa Rica going down 1-0. They were a bit unlucky. They definitely yep. had some chances, but unfortunately, that early goal for Costa Rica was enough to see them through to the World Cup. We'll also touch on Australia's uh, World Cup qualification a little bit later on against Peru. Also, some big football transfers, Jono. It looks like Sadio Mane is going to join Bayern Munich. Apparently, 41 million euros is the reported fee. So that looks like that move will happen. Well, another couple that have uh, come up is Raheem Sterling, Manchester City to Chelsea. Apparently, is a rumour. While yep. Romelu Lukaku looks like he'll go back to Inter Milan on loan. So uh, what stands out for that? For you, Jono, with those uh, transfers? Yeah, I guess, I mean, the Sterling one is probably the biggest standout. Look, I, I, I've kind of always said that, you know, every single time if Man City, they keep losing in the Champions League, so they need to kind of shift in ways, bring in different players. So I thought this was, you know, going to happen regardless. But I did not see this happening this year. I would have thought some other players possibly would be offloaded. So it'd be interesting if he actually does move into neighboring Chelsea as well. It's another rival in the Premier League. So it'd be really interesting if he uh, if he lands there. The other one that looks like he may move from City is also Gabriel Jesus, yep. looking like he may end up at Arsenal. I know he wants more first-team football. And obviously, Haaland coming into Man City, it looks unlikely that Jesus would get the amount, of, the amount of game time he would be after. So we'll see what happens there. NRL and round 15 saw some big results again with the Dragons upsetting the Rabbitohs 32 points to 12. While my Manly, I don't know how we did this, blew a 14-point lead with 10 minutes to go <laughs> to lose to the North Queensland Cowboys, 28-26. to 26. Melbourne proved a little bit too good for Brisbane, 32-20, to 20, while the Eels defeated the Sydney Roosters, 26-16. to 16. So Penrith remained top, followed by the Storm, Cowboys and Sharks, while the Dragons now round out the top eight. AFL, round 14, again, delivered some significant results as Richmond down Carlton, 81-66, while Essendon upset secured 107-72, and Port Adelaide defeated a disappointing Sydney Swans, 82 to 59, meaning Brisbane, they remain top, followed by Melbourne, Fremantle, and Geelong, while Sydney stay in seventh. In rugby, it was the Super Rugby Pacific final, and the Crusaders proved a little bit too good for the Blues, 21 points to seven. So, congratulations to the Canterbury Crusaders, another title uh, to an amazing franchise over there in New Zealand. Cricket and Sri Lanka lead Australia 2 1 in the ODI series. Uh, in Sri Lanka with two games to go after they recorded a six-wicket win over Australia in the third match. Australia made six for 291, but Sri Lanka chased it down, making four for 292. Path of Nisanka starred, making 137. So a good ODI series over there. Golf and Englishman Matt Fitzpatrick won the US Open as he finished on six under, a shot ahead of Americans Will Zaltoris and Scotty Scheffler. So congratulations uh, to Matt Fitzpatrick and, and golf in the headlines for all the right reasons uh, this yeah. week with the US yeah. Open after, obviously, with the LOV Golf Series getting underway the week before. F1, it was the Montreal GP in Canada, and Red Bull Max Verstappen finished first, followed by Ferrari's Carlos Sainz and Mercedes' Lewis Hamilton, meaning Max Verstappen stays top of the Drivers' Championship, 46 points ahead now of teammate Sergio Perez, and Ferrari's Charles Leclerc is in third. Ice hockey, Jono, the Stanley Cup finals and a bit of a boil over here uh, all of a sudden out of the first two games. The Colorado Avalanche are leading the Tampa Bay Lightning 2-0. The Colorado Avalanche has been winning 7-0 in game two. So uh, 
Jono, the Tampa Bay Lightning have it all to do here. Yeah, I mean, what a what a crazy game too to see that type of result as well in the Stanley Cup Finals as well from these two teams that realistically are two of the top teams all year all year long as well as even preseason favorites really to kind of go in there too. But um, all props to the Avalanche for really just saying after you know that first tight game one being like, nope, we're going to stamp some authority here. Um, look, the Lightning are a team. They've proven this time and time again, even in the last series as well, that they can come back from these types of things. So I wouldn't necessarily count them out yet, but it really was a shock to see that large of a scoreline and difference um, in game two. I, I really didn't expect that, but it, I think it really just shapes up that little bit more. I think game three is going to be really, really important, of course, for Tampa Bay more so um, than Colorado there. But I think Tampa Bay really need to, to take a look, dig deep. And, um, and make the series tight because otherwise they lose this game and I'm going to say it's pretty much out of reach for them. Yeah, it sets it up for a huge third game there in the Stanley Cup Finals. Well, as I said at the top of the show, Jono, uh, Australia had a massive World Cup qualifier last week, Tuesday morning Australian time. Uh, the nation was up trying to see our boys through the World Cup. And, man, they did it the hard way, but they got there. The game ended nil-nil. It was a tight game. Australia probably actually... Had the better of the play, created a few good chances. Peru did come close when they hit the post from a header. Um, but overall, Peru were a little bit disappointing, Jono, I guess, in that 120 minutes. And it came down to the penalty shootout. Uh, Graham Arnold made the big decision of putting Andrew Redmayne on, putting him on at the end of extra time. Matty Ryan came off, the third-choice goalkeeper, and he became an instant hero with his uh, penalty shoot save to send, through, send Australia through 5-4. Jono, before we get into some of the details of the game, what did you make of the contest overall and, and how big do you think this is for Australian football? Yeah, look, I think um, what it kind of showed overall is just the the want, the grit, the, the ability to grind out some results as well from Australia. I think that was a really good display in terms of that. You know, it's really... When these games in particular go into pens and, you know, you have a game that's that there's there's no there's nothing happening essentially offensively. Maybe there's some chances this that, but nothing actually falls. Um, it, it's that much harder as well to keep invested in that game. And it just makes it that much harder. So I think from a standpoint of what this shows for this Australian national team is it does show that they're able to grind out these results. Um, and in, in this instance, look, they they came out victorious. I don't think that, you know. Most people probably prior to this game would say it was an uphill battle. Um, you know, yes, quite even in a sense, but everybody probably would have given Peru a slight edge um, going into this game. So I think it shows a lot of grit and determination from Australia as a whole, which maybe that's going to translate as well, or hopefully that translates to the World Cup as well, because it's, you know, it's going to be difficult as well with their group. So um, congrats to them. I think they should, you know, uh, Australia as a whole should really be celebrating this victory, um, but they need to bring that same intensity and that same fight to no matter what what minute we're in to keep on grinding out as well into the World Cup. For me, a couple of big things that, that came out of the game was, as you said, John, the team really did show a fighting spirit and a real collective spirit to get through. It isn't the most talented Australian team we've ever seen, yeah. but for that 120 minutes against Peru and obviously into the penalty shootout, they they fought for each other. I thought the defending was really good. Yes, it was a disappointing Peru team, which I thought would throw a lot more at us. Yeah, yeah. But to our credit, we we also nullified them. And I thought Graham Arnold got his tactics right for this game. He, he put out the right team. I thought Aaron Moy was magnificent in the midfield, considering he hasn't played full, a full match in about six months. So mm. to get him up to speed and be able to play in such a high-pressure 
environment, I think, was a real key. And also remember that Australia didn't have Tommy Rogic, who was one of our most talented players, coming off a good year with Celtic. He had pulled out uh, due to personal reasons. So to do it without one of my, our most creative players as well, I thought, is a big tick to this Australian team. And the other big fact coming out was 20 qualification games for this team uh, in this period, and 16 of those have been played away from home. So to do it, uh, even in the Middle East, in that heat in Qatar, it's yeah, not our yeah. home stadium. You, the, even the crowd, uh, a lot of uh, Peruvians came from South America, so they had most of the crowd there. Um, they had all the excuses of Australia not to get through it. And to do it, I think, is really important for this country, especially coming off a disappointing A-League season, which I think needs to be rectified for next season. Disappointing crowds, I think the coverage could have been a lot better. I think the engagement with our fans wasn't there this year. So to now have Australia going to Qatar at the end of the year, I think is a major boost for Australian football and, and something that we definitely did need in this country. Yeah, and one thing as well that, that really, of course, did stand out from this game is the late game tactics in terms of the switch, you know, of goalkeeper, as you, as you noted. Um, and we often see that when, when that occurs, um, it also, it, in most cases seems to have a negative effect. So you see that quite often. Well, we saw when, Chelsea this year with yep. uh, this year in the league cup, it didn't work uh, when Tuchel did it. And most famously, I think when Louis van Gaal did it for Holland yes, uh, yes. in 2014 world cup, and it did work when Tim Krul came on. So we've seen it work in, in both ways, but as you said, John, I was a, it was a major risk there for a great oh, because such a if it hadn't worked, he could have come under heavy criticism. Yeah, and I mean that's that's the thing. You, it's it's that high risk situation, high reward, and in this case, literally, it's the trip to the World Cup is here. So, um, I mean, I'm, it, it just kept you on the edge of the seat that much more when you saw that change happening. Um, but you know, just huge props for for having um, the ability to or the confidence to make that decision as well. That you know, you know, in the, let's say in that trading field, you know, you know, okay, you know, he's the man to 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 come up in these penalty situations. So that's the difference there. So Matt Ryan might be the better keeper overall when you're talking about gameplay, but you know, he was able to recognize, okay, we're in a situation where we're going down to penalties. Who's going to have the best ability to shot stop? Um, and also, you know, potentially it's a little bit different when you're talking about uh, penalty takers compared to the savers as well. I think it's a little bit different there too, because, you know, some people throughout the game, you start to recognize, you know, that goalkeeper's abilities a little bit, you know, you might say, oh, you know, he's a little bit weaker, you know, kind of going down to his left or whatever. And you kind of start recognizing that, especially strikers. Um, whereas you get a fresh goalkeeper, you don't know what's coming at you. And in this case as well, having a, having a goalkeeper who's, who's a, doesn't see much gameplay for Australia um, really, I think shook things up. And in this case, as we said, it was successful for Australia. So huge risk and it paid off. And I'm, I'm very, very happy that it actually paid off. Uh, may the uh, gray wiggle as everyone's calling him uh, live on. Yeah, it was great scenes and, and really credit to Graham Arnold because he's been under a lot of pressure uh, in terms of this world cup qualification uh, phase. That he's had to take his team through. So Credit to him for, for being able to make big big decisions in a very pressurised situation and he's come out on top. So Australia will be travelling to Qatar at the end of the year. France, Denmark and Tunisia uh, are in our group. So a tough group, but you never say never and, and you just never know on the day. If Australia can bring some of that spirit that they, that they brought to that game against Peru, you just never know uh, what could happen at the World Cup. But great to see... Uh, the boys there this year and, and obviously all of Australia will be behind them uh, when that gets underway. Another big story, John, but it may not have been um, 
as widely spoken about is the to do with the upcoming Australia versus England test series in, in the rugby uh, in July here. So obviously a big rivalry, as we always know, between Australia and England. But the story actually uh, revolves around the naming of the trophy. So traditionally for the last 25 years, it's been named the Cook Cup, uh, obviously named after um, due to Australia's colonial pastor, James Cook, who has become a divisive figure in this country, especially in the last in the few, in the last uh, few years, uh, due to as I said, Australia's colonial past and our indigenous culture. Uh, but I think a really good move by Rugby Australia, and also agreed on with the English uh, Rugby Board, is actually renaming the trophy. So it is now going to be named after Indigenous Australian and Wallabies great Mark Eller, as well as former England winger Egda Mobs, who died while serving the country in World War One. And the trophy will be renamed the Ella Mobs Trophy. Um, Jono, do you think this is a really good move by Rugby Australia and I guess a willingness for them to actually start encouraging young Indigenous youth to engage with the game and also creating, I guess, a more inclusive culture wherein we are willing to move on and actually change and, and uh, acknowledge that Australia's past and, and history um, isn't, uh, I guess, inclusive of everyone that lives here and, and obviously we're trying now to sort of um, I guess, include that Indigenous part into our um, or into this contest now between Australia and England? Yeah, I mean, I think that this realistically, it, it's a good move um, to to rename this trophy. I mean, what it really shows to me as well is it's there's there's that recognition point, you know, recognizing the history, recognizing what the name actually carries, you know, what this means for the players who who play and represent um, who are in this um, contest, what it means for the fan base as well, who support. So I think for me, it's it really showing, it, it, it's a total recognition piece here, um, recognizing, you know, the history um, and what that means for, for certain um, people and cultural groups, and then also recognizing the need to change. And then also what we're changing it to as well. You know, it's, I think it's a, it's a total package here, which I think is really great. Um, and, these are the moves that we want to see more and more. Um, this is this is what we need need to keep on happening, um, where this does show that you know the voices are heard. Um, it's more it, it's representing now of of you know the cultures that are playing the game, and we're not just necessarily looking the other way, and also just saying, oh well, it's you know it, it's it's not right to just say, oh well, this is how it's always been. This is how we're going to continue. No. There needs to be that point of change when we recognize what the what actually occurred, um, what having a trophy named after James Cook, what what does that actually mean, and 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 how does this affect individuals? So, um, you know, look it, from from an outsider's perspective, it looks like that this is something that was you know well thought out um, in terms of it was discussed and um, they they you know kind of thought about what does it actually mean, and I'm really happy that they're moving forward from this. Um, and we will be having a change of name. And I think that, you know, it's a great example for other sports as well to really look at that and look at, um, you know, where are these comings from? I mean, we, you know, you see the issue um, with, uh, it, with, you know, even something similar in tennis as well with the naming of, um, of um, you know, during the Australian Open with certain court names as well. Um, again, these things. We've even seen the Redskins over in America, Jono. Exactly. Yeah. Over in America, changing there. Yeah, yeah. Yep. There's, there's definitely this. This spans along other um, sports. So you know, it's recognizing then 
um, what it, what actually how offensive, let's say, some of these can actually be to certain to certain groups. Um, so huge props for that. I'm very happy that this has changed, and I hope that it can continue from this. And again, just keep building on this because this leads to a better positive relationship with the communities. This leads to a better relationship with the fan base and with the players. So hopefully, we can continue to see some building from this as well. And rugby has been criticised in the past in this country in regards to its engagement with our Indigenous uh, culture and Indigenous youth in terms of that player pathway and getting more Indigenous players involved and, and obviously representing Australia and representing at the state level. And I think this is a really easy move to have made by Rugby Australia, yeah. but a move that I think is critical because imagine being a young Indigenous man um, or female or playing it, you know, playing for your country and playing for a, a trophy that actually, in terms of the connotations it has for your culture, exactly. are so negative and, and such a sad period um, that they had to live through and, and the connotations and, and uh, the history that comes with that is something that is a real dark period in this country. And it's been, it's still felt uh, to this day in terms of um, the ramifications that have, that have come from there. So I really do applaud Rugby Australia for making this move. And I think Mark Eller was a great choice. He was uh, the second Indigenous man after Arthur Beetson to captain any national Australian team in 1982. Um, and I think he's a person that young Indigenous people can, can recognise with and also inspire to be. Um, so we have criticised rugby um, before and they have come under a lot of criticism, but I think this is a move that needs to be applauded. And I think hopefully this will also, um, we'll see more changes and more engagement uh, yeah. through rugby um, over time. And obviously hopefully we do see that, uh, the fruits of that come out when, when hopefully we'd also see uh, a bigger representation of Indigenous athletes uh, playing at the very highest level uh, in rugby in this country. So um, applaud to both the Australian board and also the English yeah, yeah. You know, rugby board to come on board and support this decision. But I think it's uh, it's going to be really special um, when this test series gets underway. And the Australian team will also be wearing their Indigenous jersey, I think, the second game. Uh, yep. They'll be also debuting that. So, um, And that comes in you know, off NAIDOC week. Uh, so it's a really important time in this country. So congratulations um, to, as I said, both the boards for, for making this change. A small change, but a very significant change. Yes, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, um, and these are the changes that can have that impact, as you said, no matter how small this can impact those future generations. And, and as I said, it just, it just really proves and paves a way for more changes to happen. Absolutely. Well, John, the other big story last week, there were a few going around, uh, was the Golden State Warriors uh, winning the NBA Finals 4-2 over Boston. And Jono, considering where they'd come from in the last two years, 2020, they had the worst record in the NBA. We obviously know Clay Thompson was out injured all year, um, stepped in quite enough to, to carry that team at that point. Last year, they got knocked out in the playing tournament. Uh, I guess the introduction of that playing tournament last year. And again, Clay Thompson was sort of in and out of that squad. And then to come this year, Jono, and win an NBA championship, uh, their fourth. In the last eight years, I think, somewhere yep. along those lines. What an amazing achievement. And, and how much credit do you think Steve Kerr also needs to be given uh, for, to be able to put this team together? It's not his most talented Golden State Warriors team. This is not the team with Kevin Durant um, in it. 
So how much credit do you think he needs to be given and beating a tough Boston team as well? Yeah, I think um, this one really solidifies Steve Kerr's legacy. Um, You know, I think what it really shows is his transition essentially from um, a player to more of a, let's say, locker room figure to now a mentor and true coach as well. Um, you know, he is someone who's been around the best in the game. I mean, he, you know, he's he's won championships with the Chicago Bulls, with the Spurs as a player. And now, of course, this legacy he's building with the Golden State Warriors. And I think what, you know, the previous championships have shown is he definitely had a talented bunch. You know, there's no doubt with that. That was all of everybody in their prime. Um, Kevin Durant as well was a part of that. Um, and that was, I think, really more of that managing egos, managing those players. Whereas what we've now seen is since those days, um, injury after injury, you know, troubles with certain players, um, shifting a roster of roster spots, but yet he's been a a consistent voice and been able to build up some players as well. Um, And now, as you said, if you look at it realistically, yes, they still have Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, players like that. But one, they're aging. They're not the same productivity as they once were. They were still banged up throughout the year as well. There was, they did not have that time that they consistently played together as well. And what Steve Kerr was able to do this year was find those other role players to really come in when needed as well. So I think that this championship, more so than others, yes, in the actual finals series, you know, Steph Curry was unbelievable, um, but it really shows the importance of these role players. And I think that goes back now to then Steve Kerr's playing days because he was always that role player as well. So he's made almost this full circle now where it shows the importance of the role that he played in the championships that he won as a player. He's now transitioned to that as a coach where he's made the most important decisions are bringing in the players that he brought in to support Steph Curry, to support Clay Thompson, to support Draymond Green. Um, And that's exactly what he does. So for him as a coach, he now, I think, solidifies his name as one of the top coaches the NBA has ever seen um, and his ability to transfer his knowledge on to the next. Um, And look, who knows? I mean, he can continue the success. You know, he might, you know, eventually I I I see him staying with the Golden State Warriors for a little bit longer, might try and take on another sort of project or in a different capacity as well. Um, But he really has solidified himself as one of the top coaches. I give him a lot, a lot of credit for this championship in particular. Well, that's nine rings now for Steve Kerr. Five as a player, four as a coach. So it's a, a phenomenal record. Yeah. And as you said, John, it's, I guess this team, uh, more than probably even the other Golden State Warriors teams that have won championships in the recent years, was the introduction of, I guess, the other players and, and showing a full squad. And one of those players was Andrew Wiggins. Yeah. had a phenomenal final series. He really showed his not just his scoring power, but his defensive power as well, because obviously Steph Curry dominates a lot of time in terms of point scoring. But I thought Andrew Wiggins really um, stood out and some of the best basketball I've seen him play. Yeah, you got Andrew Wiggins, Jordan Poole, um, Gary Payton Jr. You know, there's there's the list keeps going on and on in terms of who who he was able to find to, to fit that role as well. Um, and again, you know, finding a good role player is a lot more difficult than you think. It's the same across all, all sports, you know, finding that player who's essentially that unselfish player as well, who's willing to understand the role, take that back seat. Um, that's what really makes the difference. Um, and I think for Andrew Wiggins as well, you know, he's had um, a great career, high, high draft pick as well. Um, you know, kind of was set to be one of the stars in the NBA, had kind of his ups and downs and everything, but 
The difference is he's been consistent. And now through being consistent, consistent uh, player, he's really now found his, his sweet spot here. I feel like with the Golden State Warriors, where he's found a spot where now what he does great can shine. And then by having those other players, those superstars, such as a Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, they can take the load off him in other games where maybe sometimes he's not as you know consistent of a score, but he's exceptionally defensive every single game. So I think that really showed as well. But again, that comes down to Steve Kerr's management of these players. And of course, he does have a big say in what players get brought into that Golden State Warriors team. And he he picks great, great players to be um, to, to surround Steph Curry in the bunch. Well, as we've discussed this year, the most stable franchises are usually the most successful. I think that's been proven again with the Golden State winning. They may not have the most talented team necessarily player to by player, uh, but they've got a very stable franchise and Steve Kerr has shown he's a great manager and coach, which I still think you, know, you can have as many stars as you want. does not mean it's going to work. Look at yep. Brooklyn. Even look at the Lakers, the way they've stacked up. If you have no structure... Um, and those other players that are part of your squad that aren't the stars, if they don't contribute as well, then you aren't going to win a championship. It just doesn't work like that. So I think uh, a lot of other franchises can take should take a leaf out of the way Golden State Warriors have run, and they've had a couple of tough years, Golden State. This doesn't all come easy. So I actually think this could potentially be, you know, their best championship of the lot uh, that they've won recently. So... Congratulations to them. Congratulations to Steph. Congratulations to Steve and the whole Golden State Warriors franchise. It was a phenomenal effort. But also congratulations to Boston. They had a great year. I'm sure they'll yeah. be back next year at the uh, at the business end. But Golden State just proved a little bit too good this year. Well, as always, Jono, we'll end with five quick questions. I'm going to ask you this week. Let's do it. Ready to go? Let's go, mate. All right, we did touch on Australia's World Cup group a little bit earlier. Uh, what do you rate Australia's chances of getting out of the group stage? Out of 10. Oh, so I'm rating it out of 10. 10 being what that they're going to be 10 going being through. You're guaranteed they're gone. One being you got no chance. All right, I'll give them about a six. I think that they a can. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think, look, it's going to be hard. Um, it's pretty much a, a similar group as to what they had as well in the last World exactly. Cup. Exactly. Yeah. And amazingly, uh, Peru is the only difference who they've knocked yeah. out. Yeah, so um, France and Denmark, we both know what they're capable of, and I think that they're just both really solid teams there. So they're going to have to pull in, pull up with one upset at least. Um, but I, I do think, you know, what they showed is, like I said, that that fight. Um, so I'll give them a little bit of a chance, but I, if I'm a betting man, I wouldn't put too much money on it. <laughs> a six. You take a six, I think, as an Australian supporter. It gives you an yeah. opportunity. There's always an opportunity. Yep. All right, number two. Will the Colorado Avalanche just clean sweep the Stanley Cup? Oh, I mean, look, like I said, it was, uh, I did not expect that in game two. It showed that they, they are really, a, they can turn it on. I don't think that the Lightning are going to let up that easy. I think that they're going to, I think they're going to come out game three. Or if they don't, then out of pride for what they've been in of recent history, they'll make sure that they at least win game four there to at least have one win. So I wouldn't say clean sweep, but potentially could be wrapped up in five. Yeah, we're interested to say, I think game three is a massive, uh, could really determine where that series goes. Would Raheem Sterling be a good fit at Chelsea? Yes or no? If he goes, obviously we're not sure, but if that move did happen. Yeah, I, I, I don't think so necessarily. I don't know if that's what they need in terms of the players that they have as well. 
Um, it depends on who they offloaded. Let's put it that way. If they offloaded yeah. to certain players, then I could see it possibly working, but they almost have too many similar players that would play that role um, where I kind of see, you know, Raheem Sterling as a bit of a winger, but kind of also that flexi position that can move in, but that's pretty much their whole offensive lineup is that. So they'd have to remove a fair bit of players to actually see it work. So I, I, as it stands, I'd say, no, I don't necessarily see it working as well as what they'd probably want it to be. Yeah, we need to see if that move does come through and how Tuke would want to fit him into the system. After Golden State Warriors' latest championship, where should Steph Curry now be considered in regards to best players of all time, do you think? Oof, that's a... That's a tough... It's always a tough, a tough one. one. Um, look, I mean, I, I guess I'd put him in, like, top 10. Because um, here, what he, you know, what he brings to the game is he's, he's clearly one of the best shooters of all time that's ever happened. He's changed that um, forever. Yeah, he's changed the role of, of, of a point guard as well in terms of his ability to shoot. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I put him in the top 10. It's, it's hard when you start arguing that past that as well. Um, but he's definitely, I mean, look, he, he, he's up there in terms of, of the top. And, and if anybody puts him in, in their top five or whatever, you can't really argue too much against that as well. So, but I'll put him comfortably in the top 10, potentially in that top five. If he wins another championship, five championships, and then you really are getting into some yeah. serious yep. talk in terms of, but uh, yeah, he's a phenomenal player, Steph Curry. And we did talk about it a bit earlier as well, but who wins the three test series between England and Australia? And what will the scores be in that series, do you think? Look, I think they're all going to be quite tight. Um, I'm going to give um, Australia quite a little bit of an edge um, being played as well. Um, some of the games, you know, here, potentially in Sydney as well. Um, so I'll give, I'll give Australia the edge there, but I do think that all of them are, are going to be, they're going to be tight, tight games. Um, I'm not going to be giving too much away there. And obviously, we know Eddie Jones has had the wood over Australia, the English coach, uh, recently. And England do uh, actually hold the trophy at this stage. So hopefully, we'll see Australia uh, win that trophy back. Well, that brings to the end another episode of Behind the Lights with me, Seb. And me, Jana. As always, thank you for your support and good night.